Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. Welcome back. Delighted to be with you today as we look at Mike Stoller's journey from an epic crash and burn to an eight-figure portfolio by changing the way he thinks. Mike is a former commercial airline pilot, a Navy veteran, and co-founder at Gateway Private Equity Group. When Mike first started in real estate investing in 1999, he lacked experience and knowledge, and he failed big time. Through committed action to learn and grow his skills, he has created immense change in his business and life. Between apartment complexes, houses, and hotels, Mike has owned or operated over 1,400 units. And I am really interested in getting into Mike's experiences in the hotel business during COVID. So Mike, take us into the show and tell us an experience that brought you to where you are today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alan. You know, when I was down and out and failing and, and things like that and trying to pull myself back up, one of the best things I did is get a mentor. And that mentor said, look, you know, you can make a lot of money, you're nine to five, forget about this real estate. You know, why do you want to do it? What is your goal? And he said, don't say money because money will come if you do it the correct way. And what we did is we found why I do this, why I kept going through those hard times and even harder times during COVID. But it's something that's on my wall that I look at every day. And it says, build a life that you don't need a vacation from. And that is what gets me up every day. So I can do this now that I am successful anywhere in the world and run my business. I don't need a vacation. I don't sit there and say when I'm on vacation, oh my God, I can't believe I have to go back to work. And that to me was the turning point in my real estate career, investing career. Well, I've certainly been there and done that. Remember those Sunday night blues because Monday was coming. I actually had Friday night blues because the weekend was way too short. But anyway, glad to be out of that. I'm glad you find that mindset to help you get there. Well, let's get into that initial experience when you first went into real estate and crashed. And tell us about that experience. Yeah. You know, the easy part is buying the houses getting into real estate. The hard part comes afterwards. I like to joke and say that, you know, because of my age, I started investing in the PG as the pre-Google days. So I didn't have Google. I didn't have podcasts. I didn't have online mentors. I couldn't go online to say, hey, how do you become a landlord? I'm in a small town, Indiana and bought some units, several units. That was the easy part. But now what? I didn't know what an application was, what addendums were, the notices, how to evict, you know, how do we even get, you know, all that stuff. And you couldn't reach out to anyone and research it. So I failed. We had to give all the homes back because I did not know how to become a landlord. And it, it was so bad. We had to sell our house, move in with my parents' home. You know, it was that bad. But I just, I knew that real estate was it. I just, I knew. You know, it's like Robert Kiyosaki can't lie, right? <laughs> that book was the Bible back then and probably is still today. So what I did is I went to work for a property management group because I just knew it was like, I just need that 
side of it. So you have to think outside the box. I could sit there and say, okay, well, you know what? I tried it. I failed. Here we go. Nine to five. So, but I didn't do that. I said, how can I get the knowledge that I'm lacking? So what do you do? I went to work for a property manager group and learned how to become a landlord. And then off and running. Essentially making one little change seems mm-hmm. to have made a huge, huge difference there in the trajectory of your success there. So what in that case of becoming property manager, what did you do to make sure that you didn't make that mistake? Yeah, good question. What I did was, you know, the group that I worked for were owner operators and I just paid attention. I was, you know, here's the checklist. I'm a checklist person. You know, I was a military airline pilot. I need that checklist. If A happens, someone's late on their rent. Well, how many days do I give them? When do I give them the notice? What does that notice look like? So I just did, in my notes, kept all of these checklists. If this happens, what do I do? How did they, and you just went through this whole chart. And I just wrote things down, you know, I, I copied their addendums and, and just learned from them. And that's how I knew that, okay, now when I go buy my own houses, I have now this checklist of how to get from A to B. Checklists are so important and they seem so trivial <laughs> and unimportant, but they are, they are so critical. I mean, you know, I used one to start off the podcast. Before I started that, the embarrassing things that happened because I didn't have that checklist, like <laughs> for one thing forgetting to turn the recording on and going through an entire podcast that wasn't recorded. Shame and humiliation. So a checklist, as trivial as it may seem, it's just been a lifesaver. What, in terms of real estate, we always hear this term, you you have to have a team. So what is so important about building teams? Teamwork, you know, this is one of the most important questions that you could ask, especially for people starting out or people that wanting that have started out and want to grow. A team does two things. It gives you, number one, you have to find out what your unique ability is. Okay. What is my unique ability? And I've had business mentors go through that with me. And so I find my unique ability. And what happens in in real estate investors is we try to do put on every hat and try to do it ourselves. Number one, it might be because we can't afford to get the team. But number two is, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, it's my money, my thing. I got to do it all. Well, find your unique ability and then branch out. You've got to learn how to delegate and find your team so that you can grow. I would never, never, never been able to grow to where I'm at today without getting a team. Now, that team consists of not only internal, and I utilize virtual assistants. You know, so instead of paying someone $20 an hour, and maybe they don't want to work, especially in today's society, I utilize virtual assistants that want to work. They're college educated, and I pay them a fraction of the amount, and they want to work. So I utilize them. Number two is like, you've got to get a team that is real estate focused, like the CPA. Don't get any CPA. I made the mistake. It's like, okay, here's here's a friend of mine who's a CPA. It took eight years to realize that I could do the real estate professional deduction. I'm like, you know, really? You know, my other one just didn't notice that. I have probably four or five different attorneys, you know, that's part of my team that I sometimes have to reach out to. And, you know, I'm utilizing one now. It's just extremely important. And then once you have that 
team. And once you're able to focus on what you're good at, that is when you're able to start growing and focus on instead of, you know, the whole adage of instead of working in your business, working on your business. And that's when I started to be able to grow because now I can focus on assets and buying instead of why am I still paying the bills? Why am I still doing this? You know, the menial things. Mike, why did you make that switch from multifamily to hotels? Well, I'm out in Arizona where a lot of Californians and Canadians come and just buy things sight unseen, you know, because our interest rates, everything's just a lot cheaper. The real estate is a lot cheaper. And instead of getting a three cap in California, they can come and drive our multifamily down to three and a half and four cap. And they're like, hey, I'm making a point. Well, we're used to eight caps, but they're coming in just buying everything high and it's driving everything down. And I'm not saying it's only Californian and Canadians, but a lot of it is, you know, it's just the truth of the matter. So I had multifamily that people wanted to buy sight unseen and give me an exorbitant amount of money for it. And I said, no, because I was comfortable. They came back four times and kept bumping up the price. And finally, I was like, I'm a fool if I don't take this money and run. But then I was like, now what am I going to do? You know, am I going to be I'm going to 1031 it. And am I now going to buy another apartment complex at three and a half, four cap? So one of the important things that as a real estate investor that you do is, is you're always networking, right? It's constantly, constantly networking. I knew a guy that had 20 years experience in the hotel business. So I started talking to him. It's like, hey, you know, tell me a little bit more about this. And something that your listeners learn is when you want to get into a new asset class, even if it's single family into multi, mentorship, mentorship, mentorship. I mean, I can't say that enough. Getting a partner, you don't want to buy something and then fail like I did 30 years ago or 20 some years ago. So what I did is I went to this guy and I said, hey, I've got X millions of dollars. I want to buy a hotel. Go find me one. And then if you find me one, and then I want you to run it because I don't know what I'm doing. He's going to be my property manager and I'll pay him property management. And if you then do that and teach me everything you know, I'm going to be just that fly on the wall, I'll actually give you a piece of the action at the end. You know, I wanted to incentivize him to teach me, Mm -hmm. okay? Because he didn't have to, he had enough money, but he did. And that was how, and the reason why to answer your question is because the caps rates were just starting to condense so much in multifamily and we were able to buy hotels at 10. You know, we don't use cap rates in businesses, but if you did the conversion, it'd be, you know, 10 plus. So I'm like, okay, do I want a multifamily at four or a hotel at 10? So that's why we got into it. Well, on the surface, there clearly is a, a great deal of difference between multifamily and hotel. Yes. What are the primary differences if a person is considering going into hotel mm-hmm. and they do have some multifamily experience? What mm-hmm. are the differences they need to really be aware of? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Because I, I did that. I made the switch and I couldn't believe the differences. Number one, a hotel is a business. Okay. It is not real estate. It's not considered real estate. You have a small business that sits on real estate. So you have two different aspects. But as far as the government's concerned, as far as you know, everything's concerned, you're running a business. I have 12 to 18 to 20 employees. I have 20 to 30 vendors. I'm able to get SBA loans, which is a small business association. During COVID, I was able to get the EIDLs, the PPPs. You know, it's considered a business. The biggest thing that I love about hotels is that I can change, if I use the word rent, I can change my rent 
every day or even three or four times a day where multifamilies, you're stuck in six-month leases or month-to-month or 12-month leases. I can sit there and say, hey, Super Bowl's coming next year. Guess what? My $80 room night's now 250 Or it's summer months. Okay, now it's going to be 70 instead of 150 If something comes in or maybe I'm at 80% occupancy, let's do a walk-in rate. I'm always changing. It's, it's kind of like the gas stations. You know, you could go past your gas station and, and the price could change from the morning to afternoon to evening, especially nowadays, it's really changing. But that's one of the biggest things is I can change my rent and fluctuate it. And because I charge a daily rate, that's why if you do a comparison of like a hundred room multifamily and hundred key hotel, the gross is a lot, lot bigger in the hotels because I get rent every day. Mike, tell our viewers and listeners how it is they can get in touch with you and what you have to offer. Yeah, you can go to LinkedIn, look up what's Michael Stoller websites, www.gatewaype is in privateequity.com. And what we're doing is we're looking at two builds so that we can utilize technology in the Arizona area. And we focus on what's called upper mid-scale limited service hotels. And those are the ones that did really well during COVID. So we're going to stay in that type of service. That means here's, here's your free breakfast, here's your free internet, and goodbye. Well, talking about COVID here, Mike, tell us your experiences through that COVID experience because you purchased, you were in the hotel business prior to covid Mm-hmm. So you have some knowledge of what came before COVID. You have knowledge of what COVID did and you come through that. So take us through that whole trajectory. Yeah. Uh, if I had to hear on top of my head, I would have lost it all. <laughs> the rest of it during COVID. You know, COVID was horrible, but there's things that, again, you know, when, when you fail and things like that, it's like you can sit there and crawl into a little ball or you can say, again, I need to think outside the box. I have investors that I, I have to answer to. How can I now work this whole COVID thing out? And luckily, none of our hotels had to close. And what I realized, and thank God for this, is I'm not going to, this isn't a political answer, but but it does involve some politics. And I will always now buy a hotel and thank God that all of our hotels are in states that we're not for, forced to close. The state government did not force people and force businesses to close. So therefore, the hotels that we have, it was our choice and we chose to stay open. And I have a lot of friends that have the exact same type of hotels, better hotels than me that were in states that they were forced to close and they lost the hotels because there's nothing they could do, even though, you know, they were, you know, so that's that. But what we learned, the type of hotel that did really well during COVID, where that hotel was located, for instance, if you had a hotel that was just outside of a major city, that did well because no one wanted to go into a city of nine or 10 million during COVID and stay. Even if it was family, they wanted to stay maybe 20, 30 minutes outside in a smaller town. What drove America what was, you know, the truck drivers is, is what saved America during COVID. The hotels that had truck driver parking did really well. And what we did is because we went down on some of our hotels to like 8% occupancy, we're like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Well, if it's a four-story hotel, we shut down half of it. We, we just shut down the top two stories, all the AC, all the electric, and became a two-story. You know, we just became half the hotel. And so, therefore, we needed half the employees, half the electricity. And then we, because everyone was working from home, we did things like going, hey, kind of like what a Regis did and all the Regis's and industrious and all those were, were shut down. We did day use. It's like, hey, are, are you tired? You have a spouse at home. You have three kids at home. You're trying to do Zoom calls now at your kitchen table for 50 bucks a day. Come to our hotel 
You get free coffee. You've got a quiet place. You have a shower if you need it and a desk, free internet. So we did things that, again, just thinking outside the box. We did a lot with traveling nurses. We did a lot, you know, in California, they shut down everything. You couldn't even play sports outside, you know, soccer teams or volleyball teams. I mean, nothing. And so what we did is we did a lot of marketing out in California for travel teams. And it was crazy. We would have two travel teams that were only four miles apart in California. California, travel all the way to Arizona just to play at a sports and then drive all the way back. And they were only four miles apart, but they had to do all these this expense just to keep playing it. And we took advantage of that with that type of marketing. So it's, it's what it is. You're, you're just thinking outside of the box instead of saying, oh, woe is me. I'm just going to shut down for six months. So COVID made me a much, much better hotelier, you know, because when, when things are wonderful, you're just sitting fat, dumb, and happy. You're not really learning anything. It, you learn during these types of crises. Mike, you made that change from apartments to hotels. What is it that, that has been so attractive about the hotel industry, mm-hmm. other than the fact that you talked about the cap rates being significantly different there? Well, for the this is going to be funny. For the biggest part, I don't have tenants, which makes me very happy. <laughs> You know, that is that is very good. But also, I love the business aspect of it. Instead of just doing rents, okay, you know, we're going to do another 3% increase. It keeps my mind going. I actually own a business and I do franchises. So we have, you know, Radisson, Wyndham, a, a Choice Hotel, IHG. So it's running. I just really love running the business. I love having employees that I can say, here's your page. Well, if they want to work. You know, I love employees, but the biggest thing is I just love the fact that I get to come up to wake up in the morning and I'm running an actual business. You know, it's just fun. What is the major downside? The major downside of hotels, it's not the competition. It's trying to find a hotel that has multiple drivers. Pre-COVID, it didn't really matter. You know, there was very few downsides. You could have a hotel near a university and it was wonderful. You know, everyone wanted a hotel near a university until COVID happened. And no one's going to the university. So the hard part is finding something and where it has multiple drivers and then keeping the morale of the employees. You know, it's very tedious. You're just, you have front desk and the the housekeepers are just doing the same thing, same thing, same thing. How can we keep that morale up and make it part of a family? And then, you know, one of the hard things is when you're a franchise hotel, every three or four years, they make you spend a lot of money revamping and refreshing the interiors and things like that. You know, for instance, it's, we have a, one hotel I won't mention, but they changed the logo and it was the letter. And instead of a squiggly, they just made it a straight line. That was the only change. No one in their right mind would ever even notice it. But because their marketing department needed to validate their existence, they just changed something from a squiggly to a straight line. And it cost us $100,000 because we had the big marquee sign. We had to change everything. All the signage. And so that's some of the frustration part is it's like, come on, you know, I'll give someone $100,000 if they even notice that that changed, notice right? The difference. Notice the difference. Mike, you are doing franchises in terms of mm-hmm. the hotels that you are going into. Would you ever do a non-franchise hotel? Yeah, good question. Probably not, you know, because the only non-franchise hotels that really work are the ones that are in resort destinations, vacation destinations. If it's just in a city and you're sitting next to a Marriott, a Hilton, and a Radisson, how much harder 
is that independent hotel having to work just to compete with hundreds of millions of rewards customers you know, that are going to those other ones? Now, if you're in Sedona, Arizona, and you have a boutique, that would work, right? But that's going to two, $300,000 a door you know, for 20 rooms. And then you still have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in marketing. For me, a better scenario is if I ever wanted to do a boutique, let's say in Sedona, I would do that boutique so and build it and customize it the way that I want to with the Southwest flair. But then I would attach myself to like an autograph collection Marriott, which is their high-end hotels. And that way I can still be independent and still do my own thing. But now I can tap into their reservation system and become a high-end Marriott property and only pay them for the reservations that they book me. But I'm still tapping into that 100 million you know, rewards members, but I still have kind of a, like a boutique independent hotel. So you're getting the best of both worlds there. Mike, it's been a delight having you and enlightened investors. I know you've enjoyed our show today and mm-hmm. with a different trend than what we usually have. Thanks for bringing us this information about hotels and the difference between them and apartments. Thanks so much for being with us, Mike. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.